Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 74 movies, one cage. Today's movie is Wind Talkers from 2002. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And this is a, a Cage Club first for us. We actually watched different cuts of the movie, and we didn't realize that we did it. It just sort of happened. So Mike has seen 20 more minutes of Wind Talkers than I have. Yeah, this was uh, kind of a surprise we just found out right before we started recording this. So I suppose wherever it comes up, I'll, I'll outline or mention the differences, see if there are any that you know really stand out or change the story. Obviously, for Cage Club completionism... I would have liked to see the longer cut. But I also wish I saw the longer cut because Mike and I were just talking and he seems to have liked it a little bit more. And we were looking at the differences between the different cuts online and he got more background on characters and also more crazy action violence. And the version that I had, like there's a couple different scenes that I'm looking at what I missed and I'm kind of genuinely disappointed that I missed out on some stuff. So... Uh, this is a movie that I'm going to. I just placed the order for the extended director's cut, and I will rewatch at some point. You know, maybe not taking notes, just sort of soaking it in and letting the action wash over me. Kind of frustrating, but hey, like we're here. We're going to still do the episode because the show must go on. So this is our second and final John Woo movie in Cage Club. He, the director of Face Off, but he doesn't have a whole lot of American movies, so it's kind of cool and kind of a weird coincidence that, you know, two of his movies are starring the same guy. Like, I wonder, I guess, Cage and Wu must have hit it off, and they sort of got along really well, and then when he was looking to cast this movie, he was probably like, hey, Cage is my guy. Yeah, I also uh, wondered the same thing when I saw Christian Slater pop up in this film and thought about Broken Arrow, one of John Wu's earlier American films. Did he make any films after this? Because I think maybe he, he had an inkling this might be, you know, his last chance to sort of go all out uh, and wanted to cast it with some people he was just comfortable working with. I think him and Cage are, are just, they worked really well together in Face Off and uh, haven't seen Broken Arrow in a long time, but this director really kind of suits Cage and his abilities, I feel. You know, it really lets him go all out and, you know, experiment and take it to you know, new and interesting places, or at least, you know, lets him try. I think he did one more American movie after this. He did Paycheck, in 2003, that weird Ben Affleck, Uma Thurman movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, I haven't seen Paycheck in a long time. I don't even know if I've seen it from start to finish. This seems like the movie to sort of go out on, right? right. Like, it's this huge, massive, $115 million budget, this gigantic war movie, this, like, epically sprawling, everything is bigger than life. You've got tons of amazing people in this movie. You've got Cage. You've got Dino Velvet, Peter Stormare. You have the best Hulk of all time, Mark Ruffalo, Christian Slater, like we were saying, Agent Stan Beeman from the Americans, you get Noah Emmerich. You get all sorts of people that are just great, and they're all pretty great in this movie, and it would have been great for him to be like, all right, Hollywood, I played your game, but I'm going to go back to my country, I'm going to do my thing, enough is enough. But then he went and did Paycheck, so hey, you never know. This is an enormous war film in the 
grand tradition of old Hollywood, I feel, right? Like John Woo, mostly known for doing everything in camera. It, it feels that way again here. You know, clearly there had to be some CGI enhancements with, you know, deep background stuff and the planes, perhaps, and things of that nature. I think of something like Pearl Harbor, which only came out a year earlier, and just how this completely puts something like that to shame. John Woo is, you know, we kind of mentioned how he can be known for being a little maybe too soap opera-esque in some of his, but I don't get like any of that in this film. It almost feels like he's going against what he's known for to a degree. The violence and all of that in here, it doesn't feel glorified like in his other films. It just feels like very sort of matter of fact and almost like a warning. <laughs> like This is some terrible stuff that I'm portraying here. You know, Stay away from doing things like this in the future. You know, considering how big of a budget this movie was and sort of how big of a deal it seems, and like you're right, like it is epic. I think the main reason that I knew basically nothing about this movie, and I think the reason why it was such a massive box office bomb, like I said, it cost $115 million to make. It only made back $40 million in the U.S., and only made back about like seventy-seven worldwide. And the real reason like why I think this was such a bomb was because this was supposed to come out in September 2001, and then 9-11 happened, and they pushed it back to mid-year June 2002. Between, I guess, the country not necessarily being ready for a war movie, right? Maybe just marketing efforts have been reshuffled. Like, they probably put a lot of money into the marketing push leading up to September, and then when they pushed it back, I'm imagining they probably didn't give it as much of a push leading up to June. So it's sort of like a weird, perfect storm of reasons why this might not have been seen. Of this time period, right? Like, we were just talking about when we talked about Captain Corelli's Mandolin. There's a lot of, like, World War II movies coming out around here. And the obvious, like, the main prestige one is Saving Private Ryan. Well, I mean, I don't even know, like, I don't even know if you really can compare the two. Well, actually, I don't know. Like, maybe maybe you can, because, like, this is kind of a small story, too, right? Like, Cage is just tasked to protect this one guy, and that's sort of all we care about. It's kind of weird to think that, like, Saving Private Ryan is sort of, it might go down, you know, as the best, or at least the most well-known, or the the most highly praised World War II movie of all time, and then, you know, four or five years later, we have this movie that basically, like, no one seems to know about or, like, talk about. I'm wondering if it's the director's cut, but, like, I just felt this put Private Ryan sort of to shame. Like, John Woo saw that and was like, I'll show you real battle, right? Like, I'll get down to the horrors for real. It's, I'm not trying to slight Private Ryan as a film. I enjoy it very much, but I just feel like this gets, like, Cage has sort of Tom Hanks-esque moments, but they don't try and make him, like, a good guy, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's just sort of more realness to this, where Private Ryan feels a little more storybook to me. This has, like, a grit to it, and almost like an Apocalypse Now type, like, surrealness to just some of the crazy situations that are actual things that could have, you know, they feel surreal to us, but these are things that actually happen. It's like the surrealness of reality, and that's what's sort of driving these, these people nuts, while they're in war, bearing witness to all these atrocities and things. But there are a lot of parallels to this in Private Ryan, you know, the American side of these stories and these sieges. It's interesting to to compare the two. I I was sort of comparing this more in my mind to Captain Corelli's Mandolin, just how, you know, that was such this small little corner of the globe for the most part there was no war going on there, you know, whatsoever. And and then in this it's just like all out 
relentless battle. You know, it's just like the entire opposite. This is what was going on while uh, Corelli was playing his mandolin. You mentioned that like it sort of feels like it was like a real story, and it does kind of feel like that this is sort of an oral tradition. I mean, you know, in terms of the Navajo, the oral tradition, whatever, it sort of feels like this is a story that's been passed down over time. And when the movie ended, I was sort of expected over the credits that we would get like pictures of the actual people. Like, they never explicitly say, like, based on true events, even though at the end they do have this thing like, you know, the code was never broken, the code was used to win the war, basically. And so it's like, hey, this was a thing that actually happened, we're kind of fictionalizing things, but, like, these are real sort of people doing real things that actually happened. And so I'm expecting to get these pictures of real people, maybe, you know, actual wind talkers, or code talkers as they're referred to in the movie. But instead, and, like, we, we talked about, like, it hasn't really happened in a while. We haven't really had weird outro credits, or we haven't really had weird credits, but it's just, like, black and white video footage of the actors. I wasn't like, sure just, if that was the director's cut edition or not. No, uh, it's, <laughs> it's the same thing for me. And, like, the first person to come up, I forget who it is, the next person's Christian Slater, and then there's Nicolas Cage. And I'm like, oh, like, this is just, like, basically memorializing the actors playing these fake characters. Like, it's just, it's a weird little touch. This movie, like you were saying, based on real people, based on real things, could have done so many things in the closing credits, and just takes a weird left turn. Yeah, I didn't really think about that until uh, you mentioned it. Uh, it. It does seem a little unusual that that's where you would put, you know, a little paragraph about, you know, this is based on this guy, you know, this person was actually, you know, modeled off of him or something something to that nature. But no, it, it is a little strange in that, <laughs> what you just said. It was pretty strange that they, you know, sort of had the curtain call for the actors instead of the characters that these people were based off of, maybe if they were, you know, actual people or not. I did find it interesting that there we're referring to real battles and real locations and things like that. So there is this strange, you know, mixture of fact and fiction that, you know, I guess it's it's just like in Private Ryan as well now. I don't know. It just didn't it didn't hit me as much, maybe because I was just very interested in these code talkers, you know. That plot device just really hooked me more into caring about these characters and their mission, whatever it was, really was kind of secondary to me. It was more about, like, is he going to protect his code talker? So the movie opens up, and it sort of tells two stories from the beginning. It opens up on Monument Valley out in Arizona around a Navajo civilization. It's actually kind of like in weird little movie things. Opening credits is the same stock footage apparently used in Back to the Future Part 3 and City Slickers 2. <laughs> so like that's those same panning shots of Monument Valley. They're in two other movies, so that's kind of cool. We meet these two different Navajo. We meet Charlie Whitehorse, and we meet Ben Yazi. We don't really know exactly what's going on. They make a big deal about them leaving home. They get on this bus. We find out that they're off to join the war. Meanwhile, we cut to Cage, and like this is all like in Arizona. It's all peaceful. It's like they're going off to do something great and noble. And then we cut to Cage, and he and we are now immediately in the shit. Like we just cut, and there's like a bloody body just floating down a river. And then the camera turns, and we see Cage. Within a second of seeing him, he just guns down a Japanese guy. It's like like a great contrast between like this peaceful, tranquil Arizona setting, and then just the heart of war. These are the two stories that are going to become one. But it's kind of cool how they they show what this guy is leaving 
to what he's going to be into very soon. Yeah, and I really like this beginning setup because it, we're not going to see it again until the very end of the film. So to me, they're like, this is America, this is the land, the ancient land of America, to be honest, and these are the native indigenous people who have lived there forever, who settled there and lived there and you know have survived through the 1800s while the white man has attacked and everything. And, you know, they're going to go off to war to protect this beauty, you know, and to me, it's quite beautiful and striking. It's reused very well in other movies. Yeah, that's what I get from Ben. You know, Ben and, and Charlie, they're going off because they believe in this land and it needs to be protected in the future generations. And, and it's just so jarring when they cut to Cage, you know, on the Solomon Islands, 1943. Like, this is like a serious brutal time in the war this is like some of the most horrible fighting that was going on and he is like you said it and like i wrote down in the shit man deep in it like cornered in it too and there's just like guys are popping out everywhere crazy you know like just crazy and i think that's the point right like a normal man just couldn't handle this like kind of madness and they all just get kind of like pinned down and and you find out like he's left in charge of these guys like what's he gonna do (laughs) you know this just seems like in a escapable hell. People are getting their hands chopped off, there's explosions, there's bayonets, people are getting stabbed, people are pulling out knives and like cutting people's throats and stabbing them, and like it's very clear that they are not in a good position, and it sort of happens a lot. Things are not going well for Cage and his men, like their backs are up against the wall, and they say to him, we need to get out of here, like we're not, like this is not a winnable situation. And he tells them that they told us to hold this position, and that's what we're going to do. And so he's like, we're not leaving. We have orders. We're going to follow those orders. Within a minute of him saying that, he quickly becomes sort of the lone survivor. Like, everybody else in his troop, all these men he's responsible for, they're all brutally gunned down. He's the only guy left. It's sort of what plagues him throughout the most of the movie, that he has this survivor's guilt, that not only is he the only person who survived, he was, like, in charge of them, and basically he failed in his duty to protect these men, and he just... It's like a feeling that he can't get over the rest of the movie. Yeah, and this is some crazy stuff. This reminds me of sort of what Birdie must have gone through, right? Like we saw in that film, he survived this helicopter crash only to get shelled with napalm and then kind of, you know, went off the deep end. This is kind of that same situation, you know, it's a different war. It's World War II. It's it's not Vietnam. However, the trauma is equal, you know, like it's the trauma of war and that, like you said, like the only guy who lived through it. So clearly he's going to be feeling that guilt really hard. In a way, he's trying to channel it later on in the film. I don't know if he does it, how successful that becomes, but it's very interesting. I love how, like, even he gets blown up, you know, like he sort of stays there till the end, first one in, last one out, and takes him getting sort of exploded in a way (laughs) to get out of there eventually. And we pick up with him in the med field hospital and talking about Birdie one more time real quick. He's got these bandages on his face and (laughs) reminded me of his role in Birdie. And he's got this really cute Navy nurse and she seems to be in love with him, and this is one difference between Mike's version of the movie and mine, that a little bit later they have kind of like a little private moment. Like, there's this Navy nurse who seems to be really into him, and she's, like, really cute, and obviously in all these movies, Cage always gets the girl, 
but like he seems just completely disinterested. The only thing he wants to do, it kind of reminds me, I wasn't thinking about it then, but it kind of reminds me now of the Hurt Locker, right? Where at the end of the Hurt Locker, Jeremy Renner gets back from war and you see him in his kitchen with Evangeline Lilly and they're just like making lunch or whatever. And he just, like, sort of seems dead beyond the eyes. He, this isn't where he belongs. And so Cage is back at this med field hospital, and he's got this really cute nurse, you know, basically willing to tend to his every need and want. All he wants to do is just get back out in the field and sort of avenge his guys. He's just driven by this remorse, by this guilt, by this idea that he failed in his duties. It's, like, kind of heartbreaking that to get back out in the field, he kind of has to cheat. When he was in, when he got hurt, when he was the only survivor, he got hit with a grenade and lost a lot of hearing in his ear. And so he has to take hearing tests, and the nurse that is in love with him helps him cheat. Like, she tells him which side to raise his hand. I guess sort of knowingly, but kind of hoping that not. She's making sure that he goes back out in the field and basically leaves her forever. Like, she's architecting her own loneliness and her own heartbreak. It's kind of interesting when you put it like that. Like, I kind of just saw her as, uh, like, an accomplice or someone that he was able to, like, manipulate a little bit just to get what he needed to. But definitely Craven battle again, you know? Like, he almost has, like, this death wish, right? Like, I don't know. Uh, He says to her something to the effect of, they died because we stuck to orders, you know? Like, all I was trying to do was my job. And, like, by doing my job, like, I got these guys killed. You know, I got to do my job better, basically, is how I think he's sort of feeling in there. He wants to go out there and sort of, you know, prove himself and honor his fallen friends. And, yeah, and it just, it's it's even harder for him because he's not just kind of deaf, but, like, he's got inner ear damage. So his equilibrium's all screwed up. He could sort of barely walk and kind of gets nauseous a lot. The nurse helps him back with a lot of that as well. I think the point of all this is he, he's not field ready, you know, and they sort of scam his way back into rotation. And when he's finally ready to get back into field duty, uh, he gets summoned to this office, and this is where we first see Christian Slater, and he kind of pops out of this office, and they summon Cage in, and he finds out what he's going to do, that there are these code talkers, there's Yazzie and there's Whitehorse, the guys we saw at the beginning of the movie, and they're being trained to give codes over the radio so that the Japanese won't understand what they're saying, and that, you know, they can relay, basically say, like, this is where you need to attack, this is where we are. And so they're learning to do that, and Cage is tasked with the, the duty that he has one guy to protect. He's got this guy, Ben Yazi. No matter what happens, do not let the enemy get him. Ever run into any engines on the songs? Indians, sir? Navajo, to be exact. Corps developed a new code based on their language. It's had quite an impact. So much so, the Navy have decided to go to great lengths to protect it. That's why you're here. You're to pair with one of them, keep his ass safe. Your job is to keep him alive so he can do his job. Begging the Major's pardon, but I believe I'd best serve the Corps killing Japs, not babysitting some Indian. Anders, we didn't pick your name out of a hat. We need good Marines. That's why you're standing here. What I'm about to tell you, Corporal, cannot leave this room. Under no circumstances can you allow your co-talker to fall into enemy hands. Your mission is to protect the code at all costs. They don't really say it here. It, It comes up a few times later in the movie, but like 
if you're about to die, you need to kill him, or if he's going to get taken away, like, you have to kill him, like, there's some real stakes here. I don't know that Cage necessarily comes to terms with the full implications of what this new job means. He's just so hungry to go back out in the field that it kind of doesn't matter. And, I mean, later in the movie, he sort of has to process all that information when it's sort of almost too late, right? Like, he just sort of jumps into it just because he's ready to get back out there. See, I sort of took it as they looked for this guy in particular because they knew he would sort of stick to orders, right? Like, he that's what got him in trouble sort of in the first place and lost all of his mates is that, like, he is a true Marine in their eyes, right? Like, he will do whatever it takes at all costs. So, I don't know. I felt like when they said, you know, you got to protect the code, wink, wink, you know, not necessarily the code talker. To me, I, I, I thought he was like, yeah, sure, you know, whatever, man. Like, because he says to Christian, so he's like, you know, don't get attached to these guys. Don't become their friend. And later, that's exactly what kind of ends up happening. You know, I don't want to get too far ahead, but, you know, he definitely has a change of view <laughs> towards the end of this film about just life, war, and everything in general. But, no, I, I sort of saw that. He was the guy they were looking for, you know, that we could trust old Joe to pull the trigger, you know, when the time comes. And it's kind of cool, too. I liked when they he was in the office and they were sort of talking about his checkered past or, like, you know, before you enlisted, you were like into this and that and like your dad and this and you know he's always disciplined and i was wondering if he was actually you know his character from racing with the moon because at the end of that movie they're sort of off to war and here he is sort of this uh, american badass and so he's like ready to go back off to war but before he does uh he goes for a little bit of run and rehab on the beach i mean you know sort of summoning his power right Mm -hmm. bringing it back in this is where he's channeling it and this movie kind of has deeper Beach implication because the actor who plays Ben Yazi, his name is Adam Beach. So lots of Beach play, <laughs> wordplay here uh, in Wind Talkers. Yeah, I definitely had uh, Beach Power written down, you know, because like we say, it's his domain, you know, we saw him there in Corelli singing and having a great time, and like, yeah, here he is again, he's on the beach, and you know, when we first saw him on the beach, I was thinking back, he was talking about war, you know, and like, worried about war, so the war is kind of a prevalent theme through Cage Club. War and the beach, and how war, they, they talk about war on the beach and everything, and so while they're waiting to go off to war, you get a real clear sense of how these characters kind of interact with one another, and sort of how far removed Cage is from interaction with other people. Ben comes up to him to introduce himself, and he spills Cage's coffee, and then he spills his coffee on Cage, and Cage like sort of just doesn't care, like he's so singularly focused. Mind if I join you? Ben Yazi. Guess uh, the core paired us up. How you doing? You're blocking my view. Oh, sorry. Heard you were from Philly, birthplace of a nation, city of brotherly love and all that. What'd you say your name was again, Private? It's Yazi, Ben Yazi. You seen any combat, Yazi? No, sir. But I gotta say, I'm looking forward to getting into some. How are you now? Christian Slater comes up just to sort of... Like, Christian Slater's sort of, like, the best guy in this movie. Like, yeah. he's just genuinely nice, like, really devoted to the cause. He comes up just to be like, 
hey, guess we're going to be doing the same thing out there. Like, just want to say hi. And Kate's like, I don't have time for you. Like, you know, I can't talk about my orders. And then we meet Noah Emmerich, and he's just this horrible racist that just, like, I like him so much as an actor, and I love him on The Americans. I mean, I guess, you know, it is something that was of the era, but to see him as, like, this one note who kind of gets a little redemption at the end, but, like, this one note, just ignorant, dumb, racist character just sort of bothered me. Like, I mean, I know that you're supposed to not like him, but I didn't like him because I usually like him so much. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think of everybody, he was the one who's who's a little too blatant, a little too sort of on the nose, right? Like maybe the little one who's a little too underwritten. I gotta tell you, I'm loving Christian Slater in this. I haven't seen like a lot of his work. He plays this guy Ox, uh, not because he's big like an ox. I love it when he's coming up and being all personable, but Cage is just like, he. his switch is off. Like, he does not want to, not only doesn't he want to get close to his code talker, but he doesn't want to get close to anybody. He's done making friends because he just knows war is going to just take him from him. Like, what? what's even the point? And that's sort of how I see him here at this point. You know, it's just, it's interesting where he's starting off. The one sort of little bit of socialization they have is they're playing cards, and nothing really much happens here that isn't reinforced in other scenes, but I just thought it was funny that like you can take Cage out of Vegas, but you can't take the <laughs> Vegas out of Cage. Speaking of Vegas, honeymoon in Vegas, we, he's also in Hawaii in this film. So, you know, a lot of cage connections there. But what I take away most from this card game is uh, Mark Ruffalo and his mustache and how he's playing <laughs> a guy nicknamed the Greek because he's Greek. I just love him, like, right off the bat. I, just, I didn't know he was in the movie, you know, until you mentioned it to me this afternoon. And so uh, seeing him uh, in his uh, 2002 style was, uh, was pretty cool. We also meet up with Dino Velvet, Peter Stormar, and he is kind of a character that I, I've never seen him play. I haven't seen him in like necessarily a ton of things, but I feel like I've seen him in enough stuff that I sort of figured he would be typecast kind of as this gruff sort of villainy type, mm-hmm. but here he's just kind of like, it, we're talking about accents with Captain Corelli, like he, his, his crazy European accent doesn't necessarily fit, like he's trying to do like a tough guy American accent, and like it's kind of close, but also a little bit weird, but like he's like this genuinely good guy, you know, basically just like an American country boy who is just in charge of Cage and these men, and it's always cool to see people... You know, we were talking about in Bringing Out the Dead, you have John Goodman and you have Tom Sizemore in these roles that you don't necessarily, like, they're doing something a little bit different or something a little bit better. Like, here it's just kind of cool that, like, this guy that I was pretty sure I knew exactly who he was is just, like, the complete opposite and, like, a 180 from the kind of guy he normally plays. Yeah, I was expecting him to be, you know, maybe a Nazi or something in this film. You know, it was World War II. I was thinking, you know, Nazis got to be somewhere, right? But no, he's uh, he plays a genuinely nice dude, right? Like, he's a great guy. He's in charge of Cage and all of the squads, pretty much. He's he's their leader. I thought I detected a bit of his, of his Euro accent, and I just sort of chalked it up to the to the idea that you know the allied forces were sort of this you know multicultural team right like they got people from everywhere so maybe i mean i know they say sweden was neutral but if i'm not mistaken like i always think of him as the swede from fargo so i thought oh maybe they just he's playing it as a foreigner and then you know i was good to go but yeah he's great here i mean he's super scary you know when i think of like dino velvet and stuff and like some of the moments in this movie would work well in a dino velvet video i feel you know some of the hand <laughs> chopping off stuff maybe but uh, yeah it's great it's always great to see a guy you know do something you're not expecting him to you know much like when i, I like to get surprised by cage when he does something you're not expecting 
And so after Stormar introduces Cage and Slater and the two Navajo, we sort of get our first interaction between Cage and Ben Yazi, and things do not go well. Cage sort of, like, he's tasked with the job of protecting Sky, but sort of doesn't understand, like, why he's there. I feel like this kind of goes back to Cage just blindly accepting the duty, but now that he has time to think about it, he's like, why do these Navajo kind of care what America's doing, you know what I mean? Like, their relationship is pretty dynamic throughout the movie, like, there's has ups and downs, but, like, here, they just, they do not hit it off very well. What are you doing here? Just trying to help. Not what I meant. You mean, what am I doing in this uniform? It's my war, too, Sergeant. I'm fighting for my country, for my land, for my people. Not your people I'm worried about. Listen, Enders, I'm a code talker. It takes me two and a half minutes to do what used to take an hour. Now somebody wearing a lot more stripes than you thinks that's worth something. Remind me to tell you when you got bullets flying over your head. So Dino Velvet like comes through and is like, you know, we're shipping out tomorrow. You know, we're going to Saipan. That's where we're headed. You know, we're going to go do our thing. We're Marines. And like, I kind of get the fact, you know, not everyone is really down for this, right? Like kind of cage isn't, I see like he might be having doubts. Like he starts sweating really bad. In, in my version, he, he has like a panic attack and starts sort of having these flashbacks. And I'm like, you know, he is like the most disturbed out of everybody here. Mark Ruffalo's sort of like looking around going, I don't know if I'm going to survive this. Uh, but then you have like the majority of people really sort of G.I. Joe, like gung-ho, like ready to go. This moment with Joe and Ben, he's just like, you know, why, what are you doing in that uniform? You know, why would you can kind of consider yourself an American? And he's like, this is my war, you know, my land. You know, my people were here before your people in a way, right? We've been fighting for America longer than you. Like, it's like in me, it's my duty. And like, I really, at that moment, I, I really, you know, no matter what Ben goes to, I liked him. I thought the actor was was doing some good stuff here him and cage you know really felt like they were sort of connecting on a level and i liked it what i sort of thought was funny that i didn't necessarily think about it when the movie but when you were just talking this is kind of like the reverse of captain corelli's mandolin they're going to this place saipan i think almost sort of like talking to the audience people are like what is saipan like i've never heard of this and peter stormar goes oh it's just you know it's a little island that we need to take to get to the next place and so it sort of feels like cephalonia right like this tiny little island that you sort of think has nothing to do with the war but maybe helps you get somewhere else so it's kind of weird that we have these two world war ii movies cage on opposite side of things but both centering around these small islands we don't traditionally associate with world war ii so i think that's kind of cool it's interesting how sort of significant things turn out to be right like you know, it's just a small little place we'll just go there we'll take this island but it becomes like you know the rest of the movie like it's not an easy thing and then you think of captain corelli it's like oh well what would they ever want with this little place it's like no there's like a strategy here right like we need it maybe to use as a base or like you say to hopscotch somewhere else so it's like very interesting how how he sort of downplays this but you know cage knows he can read between the lines like he's like this is going to be some heavy shit and so before they go off and do whatever it is they need to do in saipan there's one last night, and this is where Mike and my movies differ a little bit, that the Navy nurse shows back up, and she's about to ship back out. She's going to go to Hawaii, I think. She shows up at the bar, and he's just sort of sitting there by himself, and they have a drink. And in my movie, they just like, they each do a shot, and then it's immediately they cut the Saipan. 
But in Mike's movie, they go on this like, little bit of a date. And, like, it's kind of... Throughout the movie, she's going to keep sending Cage letters, just like Penelope Cruz was sending Christian Bale letters. It's weird that, like, in the version I saw, in the version that, you know, was in movie theaters, you never really get a sense of why she's so connected to him. Like, it almost seems like in the version I watched, she's just this nurse who maybe is close to a bunch of her patients. And why would she be sending all of them letters? So it's kind of cool, and I'm kind of interested to hear what happens on this date that gets her to sort of commit, like, if they compromise one another, if they, you know, are in a relationship. Like, I want to know what happened between them that she basically <laughs> is in love with him. Uh, okay. I guess I'll take it sort of from the start of the at the beach party to begin with. You know, I love how they're all singing, and it reminded me of Captain Corelli again when Penelope Cruz is like, what is there to sing about during war? And it's like, we're seeing it, right? Like, it's almost right a passage for battle in a way and stuff. So I loved that connection there. And then the Rita stuff, there's a, yeah, like, to me, it really drove home the idea of, like, love and war and things like that. And maybe it was deleted because it's sort of this one moment where John Woo does bring sort of that um, over-romantic style to this date. What happens is they do a shot at the bar. Christian Slater, Ox, grabs his harmonica and sort of wanders away and starts playing it. And again, I was sort of reminded of Corelli with his mandolin and musicians and music. And then it sort of dissolves into the stars and like a fade away. And and there's a sunrise and it it looks very artificial, I must say. It could be real. (laughs) Uh, And Joe and Rita are sitting in a car. Immediately, I'm like, a car sex you know what i mean yep. peggy sue got married gone in 60 seconds yeah you know, i'm probably missing one or two yeah so they're sitting in the car they've been up all night probably talking and she she says to him you know looking out into the sunset you know isn't the world a beautiful place and he immediately cuts her off and says no it's not <laughs> and i definitely thought you would have loved this moment and she sort of goes on to explain well you know her point of view and he goes on to say well you know the things i've seen and and they look into each other's eyes and they kiss and it dissolves it dissolves to white so in my mind they do spend the night together they have compromised each other however it has happened off screen i guess i'll have to live vicariously through you until my dvd gets here so that does make more sense i mean so do you think was there a enough on screen to warrant this film-long relationship, or is it more just sort of a convenient plot device to keep him, like, just to sort of keep something going throughout the whole movie? Well, I'll tell you, I was interested when she popped back up here at this party, and I was like, oh, they're bringing her back? Okay, interesting. And I don't know, maybe this little extended, it felt like a dream sequence. Maybe just be, that's why it was cut out, just stylistically, it felt so different than the rest of the film. But to me, it did actually follow through through the rest of the film. You know, when they would cut to her, you would hear her voice. Like, I did feel like she was integrated more into this movie, and, and that it did kind of, it did pay off with the letter. And, and things like that. You know, you find out at the end he was reading the letters, right? Like, again, the same thing as uh, Mandris, you know, and uh, Corelli. Like, I did read the letters, every one of them. To me, I mean, I can't tell until I watch the theatrical version, but I did like this. You know what I'm saying? Like, it didn't detract yeah. from me. You know, I felt like it, it added, and I feel like the pace in general was really good in this, too. I don't think that's all the deleted scenes in this little cut right here, either, because, like, after this, they, they go 
to the barracks and it's the next morning and they're taking pictures before they go to Saipan and Joe doesn't want to be in any of the pictures you know he's kind of sitting off to the side and everyone's taking pictures and laughing and all this stuff and to me I was like yeah he, he doesn't want to you know have any reminders of these people who are just to him he just thinks they're all just going to end up dead you know again like why try and remember why have any of that why carry that with you it's better to just stay detached so I think that scene too added a bit he has a small conversation with Charlie and I was sort of like ah maybe he should have been watching Charlie and him seem to have more in common and stuff like that but no I think it's good that he's paired with Ben because they are so different you know they are very and they they learn from each other and rub off on each other more but uh, and then we get to Saipan yeah so whether it's a short date or a long date like an overnight date the next thing that really happens, pictures excluded, is they're in Saipan. And here it's kind of, it seems like, I mean, it's in the movie, the first action that they see, but it also feels like, in terms of the way that they're shooting it, that this is the first action that these characters have faced. And so a lot of the attention here, and sort of rightfully so, is paid to Ben Yazi. And, you know, he's getting frazzled, he's like looking at a picture in his helmet of his wife and his young kid at home. He's sort of overwhelmed. Like, he's just... Like, this is his first war experience. He manages to rebound enough that he is able to uh, relay his first code, and they cut to the Japanese people, and they're like, sounds like they're speaking underwater. Like, is this English? Like, we don't we don't know what they're saying. And it's like, oh, look, look, it works, it works. He sort of gets frazzled again, that he's sort of okay. Like, he becomes okay from afar, but when he's up close and personal with these Japanese guys, they both have guns pointed at each other, him and this Japanese guy. I don't know if he's afraid to take a life or just doesn't know how to take a life, isn't willing to kill this guy, and so Cage has to come up from behind the guy and slit his throat. And so you see him both up close and from afar, that this is sort of, it's sort of like why like what Cage was asking before, like why are you here, like what are you getting yourself into because like this is some intense stuff that you're about to see. Yeah, I, I kind of feel bad for Ben to the degree where the military was like, alright, we got like this job for you, you know, and they're, they're going to be this code talker, but it, there's no way to know like what to expect, they're just like go out there, we'll train you, but once you're in the middle of a battle, it's like shock, you know, I couldn't imagine and Ben is clearly not a war yet and i think what we get out of this is that cage is sort of the ultimate warrior right um just the scope of this battle is just so amazing it's so impressive cage is just an, an animal there's just one moment where i wrote down oh he's like captain america but then i scribbled that out and i was like no he's like schwarzenegger in commando like he's just like a one-man <laughs> army like ripping through this jungle island I, at one point he kicks open a foxhole and like unloads in it and he's just like losing it and he sort of gets that like archer troy caster archer <laughs> face going on where it's like the madness taking over and 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 i don't know about your version but Mine had a, a flamethrower. Oh, yeah, there's a guy with a flamethrower throughout crap. this whole movie. They just, like, and basically, Cage just says to this guy a lot. He's just like, all right, man, torture. <laughs> this guy just, like, burns whatever. Yeah. yeah, first he, like, lights up a tank, and then he sort of lights up this little shooting box, I guess, like this little pillar thing that the, they're hiding in, inside, and the guy's just uh, roasted. And, you know, like, there's just so many bodies on fire in this movie like there's a little too many for my taste you know <laughs> i was like always love at least one in a good action film but i think john woo was like going for the world record because people are on fire everywhere it's just crazy i just want to say one last thing about this war it, it has my favorite moment of the movie actually so the idea is to get to the top of the ridge and take out the main turret and they have this sort of 
bomb that they want to throw in there. And uh, the main guy who's supposed to throw it is dead. So Cage takes it and he's like, ah, you know, cover me and shit. And oh, yeah. yeah, right. And he like throws it and misses. And then like a couple of the Japanese guys come after him and they get taken out. But one of them, he like punches him in the face and like kicks him in the groin and like throws him up in the line of fire and like uses him as like a distraction sort of human shield. So he can yeah. grab the, oh, that was, a, that was just like visually one of like the most like awesome things I, I had seen. And like to get like these little moments within the battle was like really interesting. And like, I just think John Woo did a good job of directing these these huge freaking battles, man. Like he always found a way to sort of zero in on these cool moments within these battles and then like broaden it back out more into like the epic scope. After Cage uses that body as a decoy, he then does get the bomb and tosses it in. Like his kill count in this movie is astronomical. Like and like that's not even like we're not even getting to like the most sort of badass moment where he like dive bombs onto a Japanese bunker later. Like he is crazy in this movie. Like you're right. Like he is more. He's bigger than like a comic book hero. He's like an action hero. Like he's just doing inhuman things. He's the star of this movie. Like it's just so. It's just it's just fun to watch. Yeah, there is a bit of the uh, invisible shield around him, I suppose, at parts of this, but I, I never, it never is drawn to my attention until after the fact. I'm just always so immersed within like the battle and you know John Woo's like you know orchestration of all of this. It's just like staggering. Like seeing it for the first time, I'm, I'm almost like you know why, you know why isn't this film sort of more talked about? Like this is a crazy war movie. And so another thing that John Woo does nicely is that he's not only capturing these moments of war war really well he's capturing the moments in between these wars really well and there's like these deep conversations that sort of run the gamut christian slater comes up to cage after this battle they talk about kind of the big moral dilemma of the movie that christian slater's like hey like if you have to like he doesn't really necessarily come out and say it like he kind of he's kind of beating around the bush a little bit but basically says like if you have to do you think you can kill yazi cage is like i don't want to talk about it like he now that he knows this guy now that this guy has you know a face and a name and they sort of have a little bit of interaction the thought of maybe having to kill him just because that's his one job cage doesn't want to think about that like he's already lost enough people christian slater bringing it up to him is not making cage any happier yeah, I almost feel like uh, Ox is sort of keeps just, like, pushing it and pushing it, right? He's like, ah, I'm getting along with mine. Like, why aren't you getting along with yours? Like, it's just very interesting, like, how detached the Joe is. And, you know, after this battle, it, it's almost like he's gotten his fix. You know, I, I've thought of bringing out the dead several times with his performance and, and sort of the way that he's sort of seeing dead people, you know, thinking of ghosts and all of that and, and bringing just this distance to his expression a lot of the time and intensity and, and and stuff and this was sort of another one of those moments where i was like right, he's sort of like paired with these like bigger personalities to juxtapose that right and just show how kind of lost he is and and also like um bringing out the dead it's like he's he's just had his fix you know the way those people save lives and this like killing people was like really getting him off in a way like that he loses himself and like a sense of who he is and gives into the animal inside of him and, stuff. and now it's like his downtime time and and he's just like you know detoxing or he just needs to be left alone like you really get a sense of like well maybe you don't get a sense maybe that's not the right words like i'm not sure if you get a sense or not of how he feels about ben because you know in this effort to be left alone like he just said ben is taking a bath kind of 
like, I thought we might have a time to kill moment, you know, where he's just taking this, like, bath, kind of, or just, like, just sort of cooling down, rinsing off in the river, and then he comes out, and Noah Emmerich is right there. You know, he's like, hey, I thought you were a Jap. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I was just going to kick your ass. Like, I thought you might have killed one of our guys and took his uniform. And then they start, like, fighting. Cage just kind of, like, looks on for a while. That, like, he's just, he's not sure whose side to take. And then eventually, is it Cage who breaks it up? They, they all sort of come and, and watch and see what, what all the commotion is. They try and stop it, but they're not strong enough. And it, it eventually takes Cage to come up from behind and put him in a sleeper hold. And when it's over, everyone is like, Ben, Ben, are you all right? And he's like, well, what about me? You know, who cares about Ben, right? <laughs> it shows just the complexity. Like, he doesn't have to say anything really about it. But Joe, by just not acting, is sort of maybe he ha- shares some of those same feelings. You know, we do see him say, you know, you shouldn't wander off. You do kind of look like one of them. Maybe, you know, in a way, he was just, like, letting it happen because a part of him believed it. I, I don't know. It's it's cool, though, because without saying anything, it, it adds to, like, his inner complexity. They all sort of, like, Cage and the rest of the men are like, hey, no, Emmerich, like, we're, we're not on your side. But, like, Ben, like, you know, if you're going to take another bath, if you're going to go in the river, like, let me know. Like, you're not blameless here. Cage is sort of actively trying to remain almost as neutral as possible mm-hmm. just so that he can't get close enough to get hurt in the case that someone dies. And, and I think he's portraying a good sense of how hard that's, that is to do. You know, I, I get this feeling that he wants to reach out to this guy. He's, he, you know, Ben is very green. He's never seen battle. You know, he's probably never been off the reservation. This guy, it's like the first taste of the big world, and it's war. It's just, and, and Cage is like, man, why does this guy have to be sort of corrupted by this? And he finds out, like, he's a father and all this stuff, right? He's got a wife, and it's just making it harder to not like this guy, right? He turns out to be like a good soldier and a, and a good code talker and follows orders it's just i get the struggle coming out of nicholas cage the actor right portraying joe it would be easier to open up than it is to do what he's doing but he's just so damn stubborn to me like he is making his life more difficult in this really tough situation like the sort of i don't want to say the easiest thing but like just trusting your guys sort of loving your guys i i would imagine only do good things for you in the battlefield that you know if they die of course you're going to be heartbroken, but even if you're not necessarily, like, letting yourself get close, if they never bonded and, you know, Ben got killed, Cage would still feel it, right? It's weird that in all these scenes of tremendous, like, danger and destruction and death and mayhem, Cage is able to sort of stay so removed because, like you said, like, it would be easier just to get close, but he's doing such a conscious effort of staying away in scenes like this next one where there's, like, this friendly fire, it's just, like, adds to the complexity and sort of adds to like I, I don't know I don't know yeah I think the scene is is very interesting because it plays on the theme of miscommunication they end up wandering into an area and there's a big uh, surprise attack and it, and it turns out their own men are firing at them because they didn't know they were supposed to be there and, and it sort of plays on how there's this miscommunication between Cage and the rest of the soldiers in a way but and I was sort of was thinking you know camaraderie would be a very strong weapon you know you you sort of see that in other war films and you get a sense of that between ox and charlie like these guys we don't really see much of it on screen but they share you know a lot of time playing instruments together like charlie plays the flute and ox plays the harmonica together they bond over that and later in battle when we get to 
see them, there's this sort of shorthand between them, right? They almost know what each other's thinking. At least that's the sense that I was getting from them, definitely as opposed to Ben and Joe, who struggled for most of the film to work as a team. Now, one thing I have to point out is that there's not a lot of harmonica playing in my cut of the movie. There's, a, there's I think, that I remember one scene where Whitehorse is trying to teach Ox how to play the flute. And, or maybe there's two scenes, like a little bit later, they say, oh, like it actually starts, it, like it kind of sounds like music now, mm-hmm. like good job. I think that I was reading in the differences that there is, that they, they did cut out some harmonica. Seeing the extra footage does emphasize how difficult Cage is making his life. Maybe that whole like meltdown at the end of the movie, where he's not able to communicate with Ben, and Ben sort of goes off and does like crazy, stupid, reckless things, maybe that wouldn't have happened if he just spent time and sort of opened up to him in any other situation other than when he's like piss ass drunk i just kept thinking you know if they had worked out their differences or i don't know i mean you can't really blame the guy right because like these you know he wasn't the only one going through stuff like this and like it's it's hard to say you know wow if cage's character could just you know open up and talk to these guys but like i always keep just forgetting you know what exactly he's going through you know to one degree i get it but he he doesn't want to lose his friend right he doesn't want to make friends because he he doesn't want to lose friends and like i understand i get that you know what i mean so it's tough it's such a tough call but like i still believe he you know friendship is powerful and definitely with war like it would have helped if they grew closer sooner but they do get the chance to bond here they kind of get pinned down between the marines behind them and then the japanese are sort of in front of them and they're caught like in the middle right of these two forces And the whole idea is to get Ben to the radio on the hill that the Japanese have and call off this friendly fire. Yeah, they're sort of forced to bond out of necessity, right? That they're pinned down by friendly fire. They've got the Japanese in front of them, literally between like a rock and a hard place. And so the plan is for Ben to take him as a prisoner. They really haven't done anything constructive up to this point. And now they just have to basically be 100% in tandem. They almost need to know what each other's thinking. It's sort of surprising that it works as well as it does because they're so not on the same page. You were right, Joe. They do look like a nip. What the hell are you talking about? Put on that Jap uniform. Trying to get a hold of one of their radios. Call off our guns. That's stupid. Shut up. Let him talk. He's not going out there. You're not the one in charge here, Anders. I got orders, Gunny. He's my responsibility. Sure you up to this? Find out soon enough, sir. What the hell are you doing there? You're going with him. That's okay with you. For your dot. Jap for prisoner. The one thing I kept thinking about is how Ben is watching Joe be this like super heroic warrior guy, right? And like the Navajo were known for having some pretty fierce warriors themselves back in the day, right? So this is part of Ben's culture in a sense, and maybe that's why he needs a taste of war to prove if he has what his forefathers have inside of his blood, perhaps. I just think he's in a sense wants to impress Joe, right, and, and prove to him in a way that that's undeniable, that makes him pay attention. It, it, after this instance, it'll be impossible for Joe not to care for Ben, right? Like, they go through something, they, like, pull off this really awesome sneak attack and, like, save the day. And uh, at the end of it, Joe gets a medal, and he's like, I 
can't take all the credit. You know, he's like, I have to share this credit with Ben, our Navajo. Goes through the whole deal. You know, <laughs> he's not an Indian. He's a Navajo. Report I read claims you went above and beyond. Sir, you've been recommended for commendation. And I concur. But I don't see any point in you having to wait around for all those formalities to work themselves out. Now when I got one of these handy. Congratulations, Anders. You saved a lot of Marines. I wasn't alone in that, sir. I couldn't have done it without Private Ben Yazzie. Oh. Right. The uh, Indian. Begging the Colonel's pardon, he's a Navajo of the Bitter Water people, born for the Towering House clan. And he's sort of like, it's a really cool scene that he does this little move that's just like in Broken Arrow when Christian Slater does it, where Ben is walking behind him and knocks Cage over and then Cage is behind Ben, and he sort of grabs the gun from the back of Ben's belt and just shoots three or four different Japanese guys, and then this is when he like dive bombs onto the Japanese little encampment and they sort of take control of the radio. And it's, like, again, Cage in, like, full action hero mode. And it's just great. Like, it's crazy that this plan works so well (laughs) because, like, any false step, any wrong move, Cage doesn't think to say, like, hey, push me over here. They're going to know that this guy is not Japanese and they're going to know something's up. It's a cool little moment where they, like, things just sort of happen to go well for them. Yazi's kind of frozen. I guess maybe now that he is able to talk to Cage, communicate with Cage, he sort of breaks out of his little funk, he breaks out of his shell a little bit, and this is when he finally kills his first man, and it's like this triumphant moment, right, where he's actually now kind of a soldier. Now that Cage recognizes him as like an equal, as somebody who can do things, he's able to actually kill someone. Yeah, stabs a guy in the back, too, which was, like, especially brutal. But I guess it's better not to see their face die, right, when they're dying. He gets in step, you know, he becomes that soldier. It's cool, and Cage witnesses this, and and it's like, like, yeah, like, we took the hill, you know, like, teamwork. I could only imagine, like, me and you, right, like, stealing some enemy's clothes, one of us dressing up, like, the other guy getting beat and taking the gun out of our belt, and then, like, taking this little fort, like, you know, like, just think of, like, the stories we would tell after that. Yeah, I just think from here on out, he's opened up a lot to Ben now, from here on out. I I just think he'll be more comfortable because he sees that Ben can take care of himself. Ben doesn't always need him to watch his back. He can run off and, you know, save Mark Ruffalo every once in a while if he needs to. And Ben will sort of be fine. He'll be he'll be okay on his own. Like what you said earlier, it's the big thing that after he gets commended, he wants to make sure that Ben gets his due, that Ben is sort of finally his equal, and that he's able to stand up for himself, and so he wants to make sure that now that he sees him as a full soldier, other people see him as a soldier too. And so all throughout the movie, people just say like, oh, isn't that like the Indian and he's like, hey, no, like that's that's my friend, like you know, that's that's Yazi. Like he he was instrumental in helping me do this. Then we get another scene that's sort of different between my cut and your cut. Later that night, Ben just sort of walks up to him, and Cage is really really drunk, kind of reflecting. And from what I got of this, he gets this medal, and the last time he got a medal, it was because everybody he knew died. This medal reminds him of death, and that's why he's like he just. He doesn't want to be commended. Like, being commended to him almost means he sort of failed in a way. Orders were to hold some <laughs> shitty swamp marsh on the ass end of nowhere. All of the men under my command. Men who trusted me. 
who begged me to pull back. Not one of them made it. Just one stupid asshole. I got that from his character, right? He, he's telling Ben, he's like, I didn't do anything, I just lived. These guys died, they deserve the credit. And then Ben sort of turns it around on him and he's like, you gotta like talk about these guys, you know, and keep them alive and honor their memory and things like that. And I thought that was interesting. It sort of gave joe a minute to be like oh maybe i don't know it's tough to tell because joe is so drunk he actually goes on to tell ben of the story about all of his friends dying and i'm like whoa this is like he's got the truth serum in him right now you know like this is the most he's talking all movie you know he's like oh i saw you do your ceremony like you think you know your navajo horseshit is going to protect you right and he's like yeah i think it's going to protect me and you know what are you going to do just follow orders and be a good marine and stuff so they sort of challenge each other's ideals a little bit here i don't what i got here was that ben is going to stand up to joe like he's looking at him he's drunk he's not in his war glory at this moment he needs that fix again ben is seeing like a human being he's like okay like this guy is just like the rest of us and maybe hurting more than some of us so i don't know if you got as much but my scene kind of continues doesn't it the most important thing that i got out of my version is that they're talking about like his ear and he's like oh no it's like the inner ear it's like the hammers and anvils and stuff like that and he just says i'm a little out of balance mm-hmm. and he's, he's talking about his ear but he's also talking about sort of like he doesn't know there's mean so many things in this movie right like he's like you were saying it's like this truth serum he's just opening up and basically saying like hey, I'm screwed up, and now that we, I guess, are close, like, I guess we're friends now, like, you sort of have to be there, and, like, I'm not 100%. Yeah, it's really interesting because we don't see Joe like this in front of other people at all the rest of the film, right? These are the kinds of things that he's keeping from other people. Like, anytime he's about to sort of have a flashback or, or like, get too crazy, like, he kind of runs off into a corner in my version, and then, like, otherwise it's unleashed during the actual battles and stuff like that. So it's cool to get this confessional, you know, him confiding in his, in the guy that he's got to be protecting and stuff. So, yeah, he's falling into his own trap. He's he's starting to forge a friendship with him. So I don't know if this is in your version, but from what you tell me it's not i don't know how they could cut this out because this to me is like such a great nicholas cage moment like it needs to be in the movie he gets up and he goes and he walks over where they've buried all of the dead he walks over their graves and he starts talking to them and he starts pouring out the sake onto their graves you know pouring one out for the dead pretty much just like breaks down ben has to physically like carry him to his bed and gives him like a little sort of Navajo blessing, takes a bit of ash and starts to put it around him. But then Joe wakes up and he's like, I'm not that drunk. And (laughs) it's just the end of the scene. None of that is in my movie. Like, I don't know what, I don't know. Like this movie is already long. You know what I mean? It's not like the version I saw is short. It's two hours and 14 minutes. Like, I don't know what you think of these like emotional character developing scenes. I mean, I can see you maybe wanting to tone down violence a little bit for mainstream theater audiences especially within a year of 9-11, but, like, this is a scene I want to see. Like, this is a scene that, you know, expands upon what that was and sort of tells us more about Cage and tells us more about Ben and their relationship, and to cut it out is, like, doing a disservice to everybody. 
Yeah, and I, I believe, if anything, it, it sort of justifies the brutality of the of the violence, you know, by having the, these moments between the soldiers, right? And they're really getting to the bottom of stuff. What I thought about in this scene is it's very much like the scene in Karate Kid when, you know, Mr. Miyagi is drunk and talking about his time in World War II, and, and Daniel has to, you know, sort of put him to bed. And it's just like this, here's the man that's sort of, you know, protecting me, or, you know, I, I look up to this person, and now it's my turn to take care of him in a way and it's and it's this small like rite of passage and it's it's definitely an interesting scene i I think they should have kept it in the next scene that is in the movie in my movie that i want to talk about it's just like this one sort of throwaway line (laughs) but it made me laugh because it made me think of something else is that they're talking about what they're gonna do when they get back to america and christian slater's like i got this new food called yogurt and i really like yogurt (laughs) yep i'm gonna take my daddy's strawberries mix them in with a swedish concoction called yogurt god well in america will develop a taste I was like, is this like Peggy Sue got married, where like he's popularizing yogurt? Peggy Sue went back in time and sort of invented all these things that already existed. I would love to see like a world where like Christian Slater is the reason that yogurt is a thing. <laughs> like uh, Ox's strawberry yogurt <laughs> on okay. every corner. <laughs> and like it doesn't really mean much. Like it's just kind of one of those lighthearted interactions between these like devastating war scenes. But I just love that little throwaway line. Yeah, they sort of go around the circle, and you know, Charlie is like, "Oh, I am a." sheep herder like when i go home i'm gonna just hang with them and then you know everyone sort of goes around and says what they're gonna do when they rotate back home and then they go like hey joe like what are you gonna do he's like nothing I don't even think he answers them, but, like, it's just like, there is no going home, man. Like, even when you're home, you're there in your head. You know, as much as we think he's warming up to Ben, like, he's still cold on these guys. The next scene that is in my movie, and I think it's probably the next in yours, it's maybe the most, like, affecting and tender moment, is that they're just sort of walking around, and not everything is war. Like, they're sort of looking at the fallout from the war, And Cage gets to this house where there's this mother and this, like, sick little child. And he goes in there and he starts, like, speaking Japanese to them and gives them pain medicine. And it's just, like, this really tender moment. And Ben is watching. And he comes in and Cage, again, sort of like a hidden talent, is drawing. It's this look at the Cage's life that we don't necessarily get a lot of other times. And we see, we learn about how he grew up Catholic. And that's something that he has in common with Ben. That's something that, you know, he might never have thought that he had in common with Ben being Navajo and all, but, like, they're able to connect in the scene, and, like, it's cool that after that prisoner scene, that they're sort of on the same page, and they talk when Cage is drunk, like, here is, like, where they're really finally connecting for the most part, and it's, like, at the end of the scene, Cage finally calls him Ben. Like, he's no longer calling him by his last name, he's calling him by his first name. That's a big landmark, too. And, like, this is such a cool, quiet little scene in between these massive attacks and crazy war scenes that just works so well. And it's like, it almost seems like this is the kind of scene that would have gotten cut out in my version because it, like, it adds so much to the character. <laughs> but I'm so glad that we actually got it in mind. You Catholic? Used to be. I was thinking about when they confirmed me. I was eight and they anointed me with the holy water and I remember they told me I was a soldier of Christ. I guess somewhere along the way I must have switched units. It's oil. Huh? They don't use holy water to confirm. They use oil. I was raised Catholic, too. Mission school on the reservation. (laughs) That's funny. Fathers didn't like us talking Navajo at mass. 
course one Sunday, I forgot. They punished me by tying me to the radiator in the basement for two days. I think I was eight, too. Well, they're sure letting you talk Navajo now. It's kind of spooky how they wander into this village and there doesn't seem to be any men around and they secure it like really easily. But I've always got like this bad feeling in the back of my head like that seemed like there should be an ambush. However, there isn't. And there's this really tender moment where, you know, he finds this mother with her child. And to parallel his own character, this little boy's ear hurts, right? It's He's got this bandage over the same side of his face with sort of like his ear covered up. Cage gives him his pain medication, you know, and from now on, he won't have that to sort of help him with his equilibrium or his inner ear pain or any of that it's interesting how he sacrifices like something about himself for these strangers but it's the idea that is from what i got of it it's like there's this child who deserves better than this you know like at the least he could do is stop the pain at the moment if he's not going to be able to you know stop the madness of the war and then he opens up to ben you know maybe the second most he says the entire movie when when they talk about religion and being this, you know, soldier of Christ and, and all of this. And now he wonders, you know, what he, did he switch sides? Is he now maybe a soldier for the devil because of like all this, you know, mass murder he's kind of committing, you know, granted it's war and, you know, he's just, it's not murder. He's killing people, but it's still, he's racking up a body count. It feels like he's being kept alive as this weapon in a way, you know, it almost feels like fate is keeping him alive until the end of something big, you know, just to get the job done. And, and then eventually he'll be able to die in peace and, you know, rest in peace. And what I love about the scene, what I love about putting a button on the scene is that, you know, now that Cage finally calls him Ben, some other soldier comes in who we don't necessarily know. He's like, hey, are you the Indian? And Ben is like, yeah, I'm the Indian. Like, now that Cage finally accepts him, now 100% as an equal, he can just be, quote-unquote, the Indian to everyone else. And I just kind of love that little moment. He has this one true equal in this world, this war, whatever. It's It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of him, because the one guy he wants to like him so bad finally does like him. Definitely, right? Like, he, he's got all the respect that he needs now, and he's got the confidence to, you know, face, you know, even these slight remarks that maybe he would have just said that whole bit about, you know, no, I'm a Navajo from here, from, who was from this, from this, you know, let's like going into his whole thing. I feel like he gets things on a deeper level now, you know, he, he can let certain things sort of roll off his back and knows that they're not, ultimately, they're not important to him because he doesn't know this. This guy doesn't know him. He doesn't know this guy. And he think he understands things like that now. Before he was a little more naive, wanting to get to know Joe so badly and all that, we should have just let it try and happen a little more naturally. And so it kind of makes sense in a weird sort of way that now that he's finally opening up to Ben and letting him into his life, Cage realizes, like, at the end of the scene, after Ben walks away, he, like, angrily brushes out the art that he was doing, and then he walks up to Peter Stormar, and he's just like, I need to get out of here, I can't perform my duty anymore, I need to go home. And it's almost like he told himself before he left, I'm not going to let myself get close to anybody, I don't want to hurt myself again, and now that he's sort of, uh, against his better judgment, against his intentions let Ben into his life, he's mad at himself. He's like, I need to separate myself from this because I don't want to feel like that ever again. Totally. Like, he can't come to grips with this now. Like, he made a friend out of this. Like, he did the one thing he told himself not to do. Maybe he told himself to, like, protect this guy, but I think before that it was, don't be friends with this guy. That'll help me protect him. I can't humanize, you know, my mission in a way. And he has, you know, and now he's 
panicking like he can't handle it and it's just great where he's like i can't do it you got to send me out and you know dino velvet you know he's like well we all want to go you know what do you think i'm i'm handling this shit well too you know he's like i'm losing marines we're in this madness together pal i need the old joe suck this shit up and you know get back there before he's able to really do anything about it before he's able to storm off or sort of figure something else out there's another crazy war event that happens that like there's this little girl that comes up to them and in my mind, I guess I'm thinking, maybe this isn't the type of war that we're in right now, maybe it's more of a Vietnam thing, but I'm thinking this little crying Japanese girl is like a suicide bomber. Yeah. I don't know if she's necessarily like a decoy or anything, she's just sort of there, over the hill come the Japanese, and they just start shooting all the Americans, they start throwing grenades down, and once again, the Americans are just kind of caught off guard thrust into battle when they're not expecting it. Yeah, I think I feel like John Woo does a great job of calming us down after really big battles and getting us into this sort of secure mode of all right, now we're all relaxed and then boom, like right back into a battle, you know, like right when you think you've got your grounding and your bearings about you, like he freaking throws an attack at you. It's quite jarring and I mean, some of the stuff that happens in this battle is some of the some of my favorite stuff in the movie. I mean, this battle that takes place across this whole sort of small village, maybe the size of the one in Captain Corelli, you know, it kind of reminded me of that in a sense as far as the scope of it, but a lot of great close quarters fighting and really crazy stuff here. And there's one really great moment where Noah Emmerich is about to get killed. Charlie Whitehorse takes a knife out of his boot and throws it. And Noah thinks like he's about to get <laughs> about to get like, killed by, you know, not friendly fire, but maybe friendly knives or whatever. <laughs> but it just hits this Japanese guy behind him. And it's this redeeming moment that even the worst, you know, most racist person in this entire army, they're still worthy of being saved. But then things go from sort of uplifting to horribly down <laughs> downturn. So, like, when this battle kicks off, there's a horrible start to it where the guy with the flamethrower on his back, the flamethrower, like, gas tanks get shot and he bursts into flames, right? And it just, like, immediately lowers the morale of the <laughs> of the forces, right? Like, right off the bat, it's just, like, this surreal, searing imagery of this guy, like, screaming in pain and flames and stuff. And then Joe just walks up to him and shoots him and puts him out of his misery and then sort of... Like, I feel like the battle commences, you know? <laughs> and Charlie, man, he is the man with the knife, you know? Like you said, he does that great save where he throws it, but then he also gets, like, really nasty with it, like Joker style almost, when he has to defend people hand to hand. This shows him and Ox in my cut. Like, I was like, okay, this is it. This is like the payoff, man. Like, they are backed into a corner going out in a blaze of glory together. They're like the Butch and Sundance of this movie to me. <laughs> and I'm like, their adventures paralleling. Cage and Ben are just like all there now, you know? I mean, I just feel like these guys are getting like such an amazing payoff here. It's like their highest point of the movie that they are like Butch and Sundance. They're clicking on all fronts and then Christian Slater gets stabbed by a Japanese guy. And I think it's Charlie who avenges him and kills the guy. But Christian Slater's basically bleeding out. They're side by side and they sort of both know the score. If Christian Slater were to die, same thing that if Nicolas Cage were to die, they can't take the code talker. If one goes, the other has to go. I don't even know if they say any words. Like it's this really quiet we know what this both means, but like instead of just rolling over and 
shooting Charlie in the face, Christian Slater sort of tries to do his last-ditch effort to kill everybody around him. Ultimately, it's not enough because a Japanese guy with a sword comes up and decapitates (laughs) Christian Slater. That was insane. They sort of set it up a little bit in that opening battle where a guy comes out of the brush with a sword and chops someone's hand off. And then I was like, oh, okay, we're going to, we're going to go there with the violence. All right, strap yourself in. But even that couldn't have prepared me for Christian Slater's head to get chopped off. Crazy, surreal, insane. Like, there's a movie <laughs> where his head gets chopped off. Like, why aren't people talking about wind talkers more? I don't get it. <laughs> Maybe they're just talking about it in code, and we don't know what they're saying. Ah, okay. I gotcha. But then Cage is there, and he sees Charlie. Like, they're about to kill Charlie, and then this other Japanese guy says, no, 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 he's important. Don't kill him. We need to interrogate him. But they're, like, way of interrogating him. I don't know if they were just, like, (laughs) carrying him somewhere, but it's, like, six Japanese guys just sort of holding him and not letting him move, and Cage sees what's going on. And he and Charlie now kind of have this unwritten, unspoken form of contact where they basically nod to one another, and Cage throws a grenade and takes everybody out. And that's sort of the end of the scene. Like, I'm sure that there's more war that goes on, but the next thing that we see is Cage just sort of sitting there shell-shocked. Ben comes up to him and says, hey, you know, I haven't seen Ox and Charlie in a while. Like, where are they? And Cage's like, oh, Charlie's over there. I just killed him. And Ben's like, what? (laughs) Yeah, and and I think that's when he tells Joe for the first time, where he's like, the mission is to protect the code, not you, you know? And, like, that's what it came down to. I'm a good Marine. I'm a good, you know? Like, that whole thing. Like, this is my job, man. This is my job. And Ben has trouble coming to grips with this, needless to say. Like, Joe sort of falls out of his good graces because he killed his best friend. I mean, I, I get it. I understand it. It's hard, man. I mean, that is just a very complex relationship you know like how do you understand like something that you're forced to you know this is the guy supposed to protect you and now you find out like he's also authorized to end your life this kind of like breaks ben a little bit he sort of has two friends in war right and one just killed the other one (laughs) and he doesn't know how to process it the next big thing and really one of the final major action scenes is that they see this Japanese like battalion or this Japanese encampment on top of a hill. And they're like, all right, we're going to sneak up there. We're going to go take it down. You know, They're not expecting it. It's going to be great. And they start <laughs> walking. They freeze because they realize it's an active land field or a minefield. They're all like, what are we going to do? <laughs> and Ben just like marches through, just doesn't care yeah. where he's stepping. Like One mine goes off and like Ben is fine. But now, you know, the Japanese know the Americans are coming. Things, <laughs> once again, do not go well for the Americans. Yeah, I mean, it all sounds, again, just, like, so simple, right? The guy points to a hill, and they're like, you know, basically, if we go up there, we take the whole island. Saipan will be ours, right? It'd be super great. Ultra strategical position. So, like, yeah, just another walk through the park, right? Ben Yazi is just, like, something is like, snapped in him now that, it, like you said, one of his friends killed the other friend. Now he's He's got, like, no friends. He's getting that look in his eye that Joe kind of had at the beginning, right? Screw it, man. Walk head on 
gone into battle. I wrote down he's doing his Joe Ender impression because he's just like you know wearing his balls in his sleeve at this point, and he's walking straight through the minefield. Like this guy is, he's starting to lose it. And as he loses it, like he sort of doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't care what he's doing, doesn't care whether he lives or dies. A big thing happens that he kind of he gets separated from the radio, right? And the radio is sort of left in the middle of this battlefield, and the Japanese pull out the biggest cannon in the entire movie, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and they take out a tank. The Americans are outgunned, they're outnumbered, they're outpositioned, and really their only chance of survival, their only chance of getting out of this alive, is if they get back the radio and they call on the flyboys, and they can come and take out the Japanese. And so now it becomes this like mission to get to the radio. If Ben hadn't gone crazy, if he hadn't been reckless, if he had sort of stuck to what the really the one job he was supposed to have, which is stay with the radio just in case, none of this would have happened. But because Cage didn't tell Ben why he did what he did, now it becomes this sort of race to get the radio and save the day. Yeah, it's interesting how they're sort of back in this same position. Like, we got to work together to get the radio. They pulled that move in the last battle where it took the guy's clothes and snuck around and pretend he was a prisoner. Uh, this is going to take a bit more effort because, like you said, the biggest gun, like, ever. I mean, this looks like something Stark might have made back in the 40s, you know? <laughs> like, Hydra stole it and sold it to the Japanese because this thing launches missiles, like, straight-up rockets, just, like, tearing apart these tanks like nothing. You know, and again, we're getting like 10, 15 guys on fire running around. The logistics in filming this are starting to blow my mind. You know, it's like enough already with like all this action. Like, how did he even just like accomplish this? It just seems like such an effort to film this movie. So apparently leading up to filming this movie, they put 62 extras through boot camp. And that they really had them train like they were going off to war. All the hard work that these guys put in, both the people learning how to act in the movie and also the people putting them through and so that they can be filmed in the movie, like, it all pays off. Because, like, this is just, it's intense and it's, like, it almost feels over the top even though it's not in a way that's also, like, 100% realistic. It's excessive, but, like... I'm still thinking it was worse in reality. You know what I mean? Like, as bad as it is on screen, like, it's almost John Woo doing it in a way where he's like, well, if you think this is bad, like, it's nothing compared to, like, how it really was. That's always going through my head. This is a movie thing. This battle, I can't really tell with, like, special effects and stuff. Like, later we get the planes again and things, but I'm thinking, like, all this is, like, actually going off. These are squibs, right? Like, these guys are all laced with squibs. They all have to hit, like, marks. Not only are they going through boot camp and extras but then they have to act like in the middle of this chaos but it's all just such calculated chaos and and you know you got to make sure you hit your mark so like you're not blown up by the pyrotechnics you know or you don't get seared by some of the flames going off everywhere you know don't actually accidentally run into a guy on fire you know whatever you do so i think that chaos is the exact right word because we get to a scene where there's just there's an american soldier going nuts and he's got like a knife like a really big knife and he kills like four or five guys like it almost looks like a little bit like Uma Thurman and Kill Bill like it just one guy with a big knife just killing a whole bunch of people and the way that it's shot and the way that like everything is so quick and not necessarily clear but done so intentionally I wasn't sure who it was and it turns out to be Ben and he's just like this crazed you know man on a mission and Cage sneaks up on him, he almost turns and kills Cage. And Cage, like, grabs his arm, and he's like, hey, 
Killing me is not going to bring them back. You've got to get your head right, otherwise none of us are getting out of here. In all this chaos, in all these things that are going on, it kind of comes down just like in the first battle, it was just Cage. I mean, the rest of his troop is sort of far away. In this point, it seems like it's just him and Ben, and everybody around them is Japanese. Like, it's sort of a recreation of Cage's worst moment in war. There's some really cool stuff going on here because, like, Ben is now crazy like Joe is, right? Like, bloodlusting right now. And Cage has to grab him and ultimately, like, say the words that he needs to hear where he's like, chill out. It's not going to bring him back. It's not going to bring him back. And it's just really weird to hear that coming out of the guy who needed to hear it. Like, someone needed to say that to him earlier in the movie or something. Or It's just really cool that he can project that onto someone. He sees he sees himself in Ben and and he's like, oh shit, like that's bad. That's like the animal side. Like I got to bring this guy back somehow. He's basically faced with the same situation from the opening of the movie that got all those guys killed. The exact situation he does not want to be in. They're pinned down. It seems like all hope is lost. Just looks like they're going to die. And they still haven't accomplished the one thing they need to do, which is get the radio. And he calms Ben down enough that he sort of is able to be like, okay, we need to, we need to focus and get this. On the way to the radio... They both get shot. Cage gets shot in, I guess, sort of the back, maybe, or like in the shoulder, and Ben gets shot in the leg. They both kind of collapse into like a little bunker, or like a little sort of trench. Ben says to him, you know, get it over with. I know what you need to do. You need to kill the two of us. But again, almost like Christian Slater did before, Cage isn't done yet, and he starts shooting all the Japanese guys around him, and it almost feels like a video game. Like, a lot of the stuff is shot sort of like a video game. Like, it's a lot of just running around with what looks like AKs and just sort of shooting guys who are just, like, standing around. And here it's basically, you know, Cage is back in commando mode, and it's him against the world. He's winning. Like, he's taking out everybody. It's funny, too, how he starts, he keeps saying, no one else is going to die, no one else is going to die. And then, like, everyone running at him, he kills, you know? <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, no one on our side's going to die. I get that. As these battles go along, they get drawn out a little bit. And, like, yeah, I think maybe video games picked up on this from movies more than movies took it from video games. Because I started saying to myself, oh, it's like Call of Duty. You know, after this film and around this time is sort of when I believe like that stuff started coming out and getting popular looking back on it now it does feel more sort of like a video game a little more highly stylized and less realistic and i'm thinking now like yeah these japanese soldiers we, we've never really seen a clear face on anybody and they are just sort of stormtrooping cannon fodder for the most part and it hasn't detracted from the action or drama for me it's almost the opposite of captain corelli's mandolin right where we humanize these villains and in this movie, it could basically be the same three Japanese guys in every shot. We don't know anything about them. We never see a scene really from their perspective. They are sort of like stormtroopers. You're right. The one thing I wanted to mention that I didn't mention before was that when Ben says, you know, do what you have to do, it's cool and it's a nice little reversal that now Cage is the one who can't pull the trigger. Earlier in the yeah. movie, you know, Ben couldn't kill the guy and now it's Cage who can't kill when he sort of has to kill almost. Yeah, and what I also like about it is Joe found something in him that said, this isn't the end. Like, you know, I have to wait until the very last possible moment, maybe, to kill this guy. And for, as far as he's concerned, they're not dead yet. You know, no one else is going to die. Like he says, digs deep down and just finds this inhuman strength inside and picks up Ben, like throws him over his back and just pretty much starts freaking running for it. 
Yeah, and then Noah Emmer comes out, and I think Mark Ruffalo, I think he's still alive. Yeah, he they kind of come out, they save the day, and then air support comes in, and the Japanese are taken out. And we're like, yeah, the Americans win, like, we're triumphant. We cut to Cage, and Cage has a bullet wound in the middle of his chest. And sad to say, this is another Cage Club movie where he doesn't make it out alive. It was a really good reveal that he was going to die, too, because at the last possible moment, he sort of pops out of the foxhole and drags Ben in. So you don't think that, at least I didn't get the sense that he was injured, but it was almost like this last gasp of power (laughs) that he did, like the last thing, his last deed before dying. And then I got this idea that, you know, maybe I kind of alluded to earlier, uh, he was kept alive to win this battle, and now he can be laid to rest. Somewhere, something, some force of nature was making sure that he survived up until this point, and they got the hill, they got the island, and he can finally die. And they saved a lot of Marines today. And that's something that he's sort of come back to a lot of times, you know. He did he did his job, we saved a lot of Marines, and he sort of dies with those words that, you know, he didn't live through the end, but he did his job. And, you know, it's the little victories that add up to the greater victory, and, like, he did everything he was asked. What I like to think in his dying moment was, you know, he didn't just protect the code, he got to protect the code talker as well. He found it in himself to be friends and make a friend with this man and do the mission you know like he didn't need to remove himself emotionally the entire time and i think at the end he sort of realizes that and he can die with that peace of mind in a way cage dies and that's sort of the end of the war and we see ben take his dog tags and we cut back to monument valley and ben is kind of washing his tags in water kind of says like a eulogy of sorts and the navajo prayer and he tells his son like if you ever tell a story about me and about my friend here make sure that you say he was my friend this guy was important to me like he wasn't just somebody i fought alongside with like he was my friend yeah i like that moment too because it harkens back to what he said to joe where he says you know if you tell their story and mention their name that's how they can live forever and he's gonna do that for his friend joe and i just thought that was sort of a nice way to sort of end this so there's only one other thing that i want to say and it's like crazy like we've learned before that cage will kind of do whatever to commit to a role and this might be the most extreme thing he's ever done. What I read online is that Nicolas Cage actually learned to speak Navajo fluently for his part, despite the fact that at no point in the movie does his character ever speak a word of Navajo. Later on, when he was asked about it, Cage said that he did it to better understand the script, but John Woo basically thinks that Cage didn't know which part he was cast for, and thought he was one of the wind talkers or one of the code talkers, and (laughs) that's why he learned Navajo. It's not just him taking driving lessons, or it's not him doing this or doing that. Like, he learned an entire language that he didn't have to learn. This guy commits to things. I wonder if he just learned that little bit of Japanese that he spoke in this film, or if he decided to learn... Japanese, you know, in general, because his character knew it. So many more questions are starting to come from that information. It would have been cool if he was like one of the trained code talkers. I could have seen him in that role. I mean, there was an interesting part of the film where it's like, oh, they captured this Navajo and they killed him when they tortured him. They think all the Navajos know the code, but it's just based on their language and stuff. So it could have been interesting if he was one of the code talkers as well. I would have gone with that. You know, we're mixing in. We'll have some Navajos, some Americans, a couple Greek guys. That would be like revisionist history, but I would totally be okay with it. <laughs> well. So that was Wind Talkers. Up next, we have Cage's directorial debut, 
aside from maybe when he was on Trapped in Paradise and maybe possibly directing behind the scenes. So the next movie we're going to talk about is Sunny. So that's pretty exciting. For all things Cage Club, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews for this movie and past movies, listen to past podcasts, learn how to follow us on Twitter, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. One-stop shopping, all things Nicolas Cage, cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we'll see you next time on Cage Club. <laughs>